passage this morning, again in the book of Ruth, chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 155. Pastor Bruce continues the series out of the book of Ruth, and this morning's message is titled, Under the Wings of God. Again, we're in the book of Ruth, chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. Now, there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. And Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field. Nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. And how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord of God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her. And she ate and was satisfied, and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you have taken us under your ring of protection. God, that you go before us. Lord, we just ask that this morning that uh, we would recognize that your grace in our lives truly is enough. Lord, speak to us through the truth in your word. God, may our hearts be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. How many football fans we have here today? Have a few? Casual fans or are you fanatical fans? Depends what team you're rooting for, right? You know, uh, oh man, <laughs> it's already started. <laughs> In case you didn't hear that, somebody yelled from the audience, go Raiders. In Chiefs country. But then do the Chiefs have a team this year? I'm not sure. Uh, but we won't go there. Uh, I will say, my, I took my family, and we try to do this once or twice a year. We went to, on a Friday night, to go see a high school game, and so we went to, uh, uh, to see the, the Staley High School play, and it's a big rivalry game against Kearney Bulldogs. And so, I mean, it was just packed out uh, game there, and it was just a beautiful evening, and, 
and uh, that's the school district that we live in. And so we went, we supported Staley, and lo and behold, they're still undefeated, and uh, they beat Kearney. And then, of course, yesterday, you know, is Saturday. It's a college football day, kind of d- dedicated college football. And I know we have a few uh, K-State fans. Yeah, man, great win. They had a great win at Miami, uh, on the road, no less. And then we have some Missouri fans. Who's, who are my Missouri fans? They didn't fare so well against Oklahoma, although they gave a, a gallant effort, uh, but lost it last night. And then, any KU fans? Yeah, all right. They, they, uh, they you know, they didn't play yesterday, so they didn't go backwards. <laughs> so, uh, you know, all's well that ends well right there. But uh, all this football, and here we are in the middle of football season, all this football talk kind of reminds me of a head football coach years ago who uh, needed some help with some recruiting, and so he hired an assistant coach, and so he hires him, he brings him into his office, sets him down, and kind of tells him, hey, here's our philosophy on recruiting, so he understands what kind of football player to to get, and he he tells the the assistant coach, uh, now there's basically three kinds of football players out there. There's the first kind of player who, uh, when he gets knocked down, he stays down. And Mike, the new assistant, says, Coach, yeah, man, we do not want that kind of football player, do we? And the coach says, no, we don't want that kind of football player. And then coach says, but there's another kind of football player. When he gets knocked down, he, he gets back up. And then when he knocks him down again, he stays down. And, uh, and Mike, the new recruiting coach, says, well, we don't want that kind of football player either. Coach says, no, we don't. And the coach says, well, there's a third kind of football player out there, and there's a kind that when you knock him down, he gets back up. He gets knocked down again, he gets back up. He gets knocked down again, and he gets back up. In fact, every time he's knocked down, he gets up. Nothing can keep him down. And the new assistant coach, Mike, he's like, yeah, man, that's the guy we want, isn't it, coach? And coach is like, nope, that's not the guy we want. We want you to recruit the guy who keeps knocking him down. All right, go get that guy. That's who we want on our team. Now, the question is, how many of you have ever been knocked down in life? Knocked down to the point where you feel like you've kind of hit rock bottom in life. In fact, there's a picture coming up on the screen, maybe it's already up, and you're like, yeah, I've been there, done that. That's where I kind of feel like sometimes in my life. I've hit rock bottom. In fact, you're so low that you could play handball against the curb. (laughs) Life's difficulties, life's disappointments, heartaches, heartbreaks have knocked you down and you feel like you've hit rock bottom. Well, rock bottom is exactly where Ruth and Naomi find themselves in the beginning of Ruth chapter 2 here. In chapter 1, God's hand fell hard upon Naomi and her family. Naomi started from a state of fullness with her husband and two sons and two daughters-in-laws to take care of her, but now she's been reduced to a state of emptiness as a widow with no one around to care for her. The only one left was her pesky Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, and Naomi wasn't too sure whether Ruth was an asset in her life or an embarrassment to her. And so one blow after another, one tragedy after another has left Naomi bitter against the Lord. In fact, she is so bitter by God's providence in her life that she can't see any hope. She can't even see the signs of hope. She can't see 
uh, that God has given His people food again. The famine is over. And God has made a way home, a, a way for Naomi to go back home to Bethlehem. She's blind to this. She can't even see that God has given her Ruth as her daughter-in-law. And so she's so bitter she can't see God's hand working. She can't see God's grace in her life. Naomi did her best to urge Ruth not to come back with her to Bethlehem. But Ruth would not listen to her pleas. Ruth would not be turned aside from her commitment to Naomi and ultimately to her commitment to God. And so Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem. But folks, understand, as we enter into chapter 2 here, they are returning with nothing except each other. They are destitute widows who are dirt poor with no one to take care of them. In many ways, Ruth and Naomi have hit rock bottom in life. And the question at hand for them was, will God provide for us in such situations? Is God dependable? Will God show up when we need Him most right now in our lives? And the answer that comes shouting out to us from Ruth chapter 2 is yes. It shows us that God graciously provides for those who faithfully live for Him. Now, this brings us to our, our, our summary point here. Big idea, if we want to call it whatever. So when you hit rock bottom, here's my encouragement to you. Here's what Ruth chapter 2 screams out to us this morning. When you hit rock bottom, don't give up. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. Don't stay down. Instead, fix your hope on God's amazing grace. Fix your hope on His grace at work in your life. Now, I understand that in the midst of the darkness, at least for Ruth and Naomi, at the very end of Ruth chapter 1, there was this ray of light beginning to peek through. It tells us in Ruth chapter 1, verse 22, now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. It was the beginning of what? Barley harvest. How many farmers do we have here? Anybody done some farming? Bill owns some farmland. Bill, is that a good time of year? Ah, barley harvest. Harvest time is a great time of year. Barley harvest. What time was it? Man, what was in Bethlehem at the beginning of of chapter 2 or chapter 1? It was a famine, but now there's food in Bethlehem. That means there's hope. There's a sign of God's grace at work in all the lives of His people. But like Naomi, so often when we hit rock bottom, we can't see God's grace working. We can't see the ray of hope peeking through the dark clouds. So what do we need to do to find hope? Because that's what this whole series is all about, finding hope in disappointing times. So what do we learn from the first half of chapter 2 here of Ruth? What do we need to do? Well, we simply need to follow Ruth's example and do what she did. And she does two simple steps here. Two simple steps that she takes in order to kind of lift herself up out of the pit, if you will, of disappointment, heartache, and heartbreak. And it's the same things we need to do. Notice it. Two steps to follow when you hit rock bottom. Number one, step one, is live by faith in the Lord. Live by faith in the Lord. Now, why did Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem? 
Well, the obvious answer is because they heard there was food again in Bethlehem. And not just a small amount of food. They arrived at the beginning of barley harvest. And so there was a harvest of food. But you have to understand the availability of food did not automatically alleviate their hunger. Uh, If I could say it this way, somebody had to uh, bring home the bacon for them. Somebody had to get the food. And so the most pressing issue for Ruth and Naomi, as they arrive at Bethlehem now, at the beginning of Ruth chapter 2, is how to get some of this food. It's the beginning of barley harvest. And so what we have here at the beginning are two desperate widows. Notice this in your notes. Ruth and Naomi are hungry with no one to provide for them and no one to protect them. They are hungry, and they don't have a male figure in their life to provide for them food and protect them from harm. They have nobody but each other. And although Bethlehem is once again a house of bread, remember that's what the Bethlehem names mean, it was no buffet for Ruth and Naomi. Remember, they had no crop of their own to harvest. They had no money to buy food from somebody else. And Naomi gave no indication that Boaz, who was a relative of Elimelech, was available to help them out. It's as if Naomi even forgets she has a relative named Boaz. She doesn't even mention him when they get there. And so the immediate situation for these two widows is nothing short of desperate. They are broke, they're hungry, and the fridge is bare. They're at rock bottom. So what do you do? Well, that's when Ruth, that's when one woman here takes a giant leap of faith. She takes a step of faith. Notice it. Ruth takes the initiative to glean in the fields for food. She takes a simple step of faith, takes the initiative to glean in the fields for food. Ruth looks at her mother-in-law and says in verse 2, look at it, notice it in your Bibles. She says to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And Naomi wasn't about to stop her, so she says, go Ruth, go, please go. Go find us some food. Now this is faith in action, folks. Ruth is basically saying here, I didn't move all the way from Moab to Bethlehem and give my life to the Lord for God to let me down now. I'm going to do my part, and I'm going to go work in the fields for food, and even though I'm a stranger in this land and I don't know anybody, God's going to give someone a heart for me and you, and we will find favor in their eyes. What kind of worker was Ruth? Oh, man. She's a hard, diligent worker. Verse 7 tells us, skip down to verse 7 and look at it. It says, she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. And then if you skip down all the way to verse 17, it says, she gleaned in the field until when? Evening. Now, there is no doubt that God is highlighting something here for us about Ruth. That God wants us to admire and even imitate Ruth's faith and character in our own lives. In many ways, Ruth is an example of what we would uh, sometimes refer to as the, the woman in Proverbs 31. 
She's an example of that kind of woman. She takes the initiative to care for her destitute mother-in-law. She is humble and meek in her dealings with, the, with Boaz's servants. And she works hard from sunup to sundown. Listen, all these are worthy traits to admire and imitate. In fact, as we will see in the next chapter, they serve Ruth very, very well. Now, before we move on, let's talk about this, this idea here, gleaning in the fields. What exactly does that mean? Because Ruth takes this initiative to go glean in the fields. Well, notice what this is. Gleaning in the fields was God's welfare-to-work program for the poor. This was, this was God's way of providing for the poor, for caring for them, through a provision made in the law of Moses. Let me read you just a couple of passages, references to this. You see it there in your notes in Leviticus 23, 22. This is God's commandment to his children, the nation of Israel, through Moses. Here's what he says to them. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field. Or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien. Alien simply meaning a foreigner, a stranger. I am the Lord your God. In other words, I own the land. You are simply stewards of it. I'm the ultimate owner. And here's how I'm going to provide for the poor among us. Deuteronomy 24, 19, he says the same thing. He says, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. In other words, here's how God's program works. The poor were not simply to depend on handouts. Instead, it was their responsibility to glean in the fields for food just as it was the landowner's responsibility to leave something behind. They were not to be greedy and harvest everything. They were to leave it behind. So gleaning is then, it's working and picking up grain left behind by the reapers. And it was hard work. It was hot work. And it was not necessarily safe work either, since it depended on the goodwill of landowners and reapers. And it was especially dangerous for a foreign woman like Ruth, who had no family to protect her and to call upon when she needed help. It would be the equivalent uh, today, if we were to take the same analogy and put it in our context, it would be the equivalent of one of you young ladies moving here to Kansas City, only knowing one person, being flat broke, you're hungry, And so you go out and you begin collecting aluminum cans so you can scrounge together a few bucks for food. You're doing something. You're going to survive somehow, and so you do what you can. And yet, here's Ruth, a Moabite stranger, taking the initiative to glean in the fields for food when it would have been so much easier to say about now, God, this is what you have in store for me? Man, I'm going back home. I'm going back home to my family in Moab and my false gods in Moab. Because this is not what I signed up for when I committed my life to you. Ruth was stepping out in faith. Perhaps she heard what God said in Deuteronomy 10, 18. 
that God executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Perhaps Ruth is thinking in her mind, hey, hey, that's me. I'm fatherless. I'm a widow. I'm a stranger living in God's land with God's people. I'm going to go glean and work, and God will protect and provide for me. Listen, to live by faith means to take God at his word and then act upon it. What does James tell us? Faith without works is dead. And so right here we see proof of Ruth's faith in God Almighty because she steps out in faith. She is trusting God for her existence at this point in her life. She's stepping out in faith that somewhere out there was a generous, God-fearing landowner who would make room for the poor. Faith doesn't simply sit around waiting for provision to just drop from the skies. We are called to do what we can. And as we do what we can, we are to trust that God will provide for all our needs. I mean, God reminds us of this truth in the New Testament when he tells them Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So when you hit rock bottom, listen, don't give up. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. Instead, take a step of faith in the Lord and do what you know to do according to God's word. You say, well, why, Bruce? Do you see what's happening here in this chapter so far? Do you see how God is beginning to meet Ruth's needs and provide for her? Here's why we take a step of faith in the Lord and do what we can, according to God's word. Because God, listen, he often meets our needs in life through simple acts of faithful obedience. Let me say it again. God often meets our needs. Folks, listen to me. Whether your need is spiritual, whether it's emotional, whether it's physical, whatever the need is, He often meets our needs in life through our simple, faithful obedience to Him. And so as you live by faith, take it, step, trust in Him that He will provide. Claim His promises in your life. And as you live by faith, step number two then is to look for the grace of God at work in your life. So step one is, we live by faith. We act in faith. We step out in faith, trusting God to do something for us as we do what we know we should do. And step number two is, we look for the grace of God at work in our lives. Now, it's at this point that we need to introduce ourselves to Boaz. Who is Boaz? Because from here on out, he's going to become the central character in our story of God redeeming Ruth. We're introduced to Boaz in, chap- in, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. Look at it. It says, And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name is Boaz. So immediately we're told a couple of things here about this guy named Boaz. Boaz is a relative of of Elimelech, who uh, is Naomi's deceased husband, which means that things are not nearly as bleak as Naomi suggested on the road back to Bethlehem when she was having this conversation with her daughters-in-law. She's so bitter, she can't even see any signs of God working, when here all along, God's already setting this up for his grace working in Naomi and Ruth's life. 
But Boaz is also, we're told, a man of great wealth. Now that phrase, man of great wealth, uh, in fact, some of your Bibles have maybe translated uh, a man of standing. It's sometimes even translated as a man, a mighty man of valor. In other words, Boaz has integrity and he has influence with people in the community of Bethlehem. He's a man worthy of respect. But more important than that, verse 4 shows us that Boaz is a man of God when he greets his workers. And wasn't it interesting how he greets his workers? And you have to understand, Boaz is the landowner. The harvesters, the reapers, are his employees. And how does he greet his workers? The Lord be with you. And they answered back, unbelievably, the Lord bless you. How would you like to go into work tomorrow and your boss tells you, the Lord be with you? And you're like, where did that come from? Right? And so you offer back, hey, the Lord bless you too. And so immediately, God is laying us in on a little something about this man's character here. Understand, this, this is, he, he not only knows the Lord, he is now showing the Lord to his employees. That's the kind of guy this is. Wouldn't he be a great boss to have? When, when someone says today, hey, God bless you. Or, you know, somebody said, my dad reminds me, that dad used to always tell us boys if we would do something for him, the Lord will richly bless you boys for this. The Lord will richly bless you. And when we hear somebody say that, oh, the Lord bless you, what do we think? Yeah, we think of my dad, I think well, they're being pious. <laughs> you know, they don't mean anything. They're just being a bunch of hogwash, piety, and whatnot. That's what we tend to think when we hear that, because normally there's no meaning attached to it. But Boaz, you've got to understand, he means everything he's saying here, which shows us just how much God has impacted his life, every detail of his life, even to his relationship with his employees. Now, this is amazing. I don't know if you guys are understanding this, but you've got to understand, this is so amazing right here. Boaz, do you remember the context of the book of Ruth? If you go back to Ruth chapter 1, one, verse 1, what's the context? It was during the days when the judges ruled. And you're like, well, that tells me a lot, Bruce. Well, you've got to remember, during the days when the judges ruled, what was everybody doing? Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes according to their own value system, basically. Gee, sounds like today. And yet, here's a man of God who was doing what was right according to God. In the darkest days of Israel's history. Which just goes to show us that no matter how sinful our culture may be, no matter how bad your family life may be, no matter how bad your work environment may be, it's never an excuse. It's always possible to follow Christ as a man or woman of God. Well, we like to say in the youth group, a mog in a wog. Are you a mog today? Are you a wog today? You're like, mog and wog? Yeah, man of God. Woman of God. Do you know God as your Savior and Lord? And are you showing God? Are you showing His grace and love in your relationships and as you go about life and in your home life and 
You name it. I don't care what environment you live in. Boaz is living in one of the darkest periods of Israel's history, and yet he shines forth. He is a light of hope that God is going to use in an awesome, amazing ways. we're going to see. Now, let's pick up our story of Ruth in verse 3. Look at it. Verse 3, it says, Then she left, we're talking about Ruth here, and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Now remember, when Ruth set out to glean in the field, she was looking for someone to show her favor. And that word favor is another way of saying grace. And God is going to use Boaz to show her favor and grace. But Ruth, you got to understand, has no idea yet what God was doing behind the scenes. The writer introduces us to Boaz in verse 1, but Ruth isn't introduced to him yet. She's simply stepping out by faith and trusting God to come through for her. And as Ruth steps out by faith to glean in the fields, let me tell you, two unbelievable, remarkable things happen in her life as a result of God's grace working. Now, I'm telling you, this is remarkable. Notice this, the first thing that happens in her life is divine coincidence graciously guides Ruth to the fields of Boaz. Divine coincidence. Look what it says again in verse 3. It says, Then she left and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And she, what? Happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was in the family of Elimelech. Wow! This is amazing! How many fields do you think there were at this time in the area of Bethlehem? There's got to be thousands, hundreds, a ton of fields in Ruth just happened to pick the field of Boaz? Wow, it must be her lucky day. She won the lottery. But was this really Ruth's lucky day? Was this really a coincidence? That she finds of all the fields of Bethlehem, Boaz's field, who just happens to be a relative of Naomi's deceased husband? No way. Listen, the writer doesn't believe in luck here. The writer doesn't believe in chance. Rather, what the writer of Ruth is doing for us, he used this expression in an ironic way to get our attention. So how did Ruth just happen to pick the field of Boaz? Well, the answer, I hope you're already getting and understanding, is is who? Is God. That's how this happened. His hand of providence guided Ruth's steps so that she happened to come to the Boaz's fields. Now, from a human perspective, Ruth just happened to glean in Boaz's field. She got lucky. She won the lottery of Bethlehem. But from God's perspective, though, Ruth was in Boaz's field by his providential design. After all, what does Proverbs 16.9 remind us? A man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps, and that's exactly what the Lord was doing with Ruth. Now, this has huge implications for our lives today. Notice God's hand in our luck. Look at it. Nothing in life happens by accidents, chance, or luck. Nothing in life happens by accident, chance, or luck. It happens by the gracious hand of God's providence. The lesson here is that God is working behind the scenes 
to accomplish His good purposes in our lives. Listen, nothing occurs in our lives by coincidence or chance. God is at work in our lives even when we don't see Him. See, we think of, uh, well, let's be honest, we think nothing of just common, ordinary, day-to-day encounters. We think nothing of the so-called accidents of history. But we would do well to look closely at these chance events in our lives because we just might find that the Lord himself is working in those sh- in the shadow behind them because God is constantly working with us, in us, and for us in order to accomplish his good purposes in our lives. Let me give you just briefly a couple of examples in my own life how, how this has happened. I'll go all the way back to when I was a young man and moved back here from college four years down in Springfield and, you know, going to a Bible college and whatnot, you know, I didn't find any woman to, to be my wife down there. And here there was a whole college field of women. Lo and behold, I come back home, and who's going to our church? That I start dating. Just happened to be in our church. Just happened to know her by name. Eventually, my wife. You think that's all by chance? Or do you think that's God guiding and orchestrating the events. I'll give you another time. Uh, in the mid-90s, 1994, 95, somewhere around there, I'm, I'm uh, working at UPS, hating every minute of it, and just, God, please make a way for me to have a vocational job in ministry as a youth pastor. God, it's my heart's desire. It's what I believe you called me to do. And I'm just dreading every day I go to work at UPS. God, make a way. And I'm, I'm spending a little bit of time here at the church part-time, and... You know how God opened up that door? Through a tragedy. A tragedy of my dad having a stroke. Some of you here, you remember that. When dad had a stroke, he almost died, but it took him out of commission as our senior pastor at the time for a year, basically. And during that time, while dad was out, Chris was on staff here, but there was no way he could handle all the responsibilities, and so the church put me on full time to help out. That's how I got, got on a jo- job here, through a tragedy. I'll give you another example. We think these are just coincidence, encounters or whatnot. I'm at a fellowship meeting, uh, Kansas Sunflower Fellowship meeting. This is a few years back uh, out in, um, in Topeka, Kansas. And I'm, I'm hobnobbing around with a few pastors and whatnot, and they're introducing me to some people, and there happened to be a missionary there that I have no clue who he is, never met him in my life. And so I, I introduce myself, and he introduces him. I said, my name's Bruce Ager, and he says, hey, my name's Keith Gandy, and I'm a missionary to Germany. And we got to have, going on this conversation, and I, I, and I walk away going, wow, this guy, I, he, we, our church needs to partner with him. We need to hook up with him. So I come back, and I, be, I just tell Chris about it. I said, Chris, I think this is someone we ought to pursue. Lo and behold, we invite him to our church, and the rest is history. You guys know Keith. We've partnered him now for probably 10 years. That, was, that happened as a result of just an encounter with somebody. That just happened? No. No, listen, God, these divine coincidences where God graciously guides us, he's, he has a purpose in our, our lives that he is seeking to accomplish. And so the first remarkable thing that happened in Ruth's life It was a divine coincidence guided her. The second remarkable thing that happened is divine comfort. 
divine comfort, graciously sustains Ruth in the fields of Boaz. Now, as a widow who left everything behind in Moab to follow the Lord with a bitter mother-in-law, let me ask you, how much comfort do you think Ruth has received up to this point as a stranger in Bethlehem? Think she's been comforted any? I don't think so. Do you think Ruth is feeling just a little anxious about her life? Do you think she's perhaps even second-guessing her decision to leave her family and false gods in Moab to follow the one true living God, Jehovah, and move to Bethlehem with a bitter mother-in-law? Do you think she's beginning to second-guess that a little bit? Do you think God knows that Ruth could use a little comfort, a little reassurance in her life about now? Yes, and that's exactly what God is going to do for her through Boaz. Notice this channel of God's grace in Boaz. Through Boaz, God protects Ruth from harm and provides Ruth with food. Now, this is so amazing. The grace and kindness that Boaz shows Ruth, you've got to understand, in this, that day and age, it was extraordinary. In fact, if this would happen today, it would be extraordinary. And I want us to read this again and just make a few highlights here. Notice verses 4 and 5. Look what it says. Now behold. In other words, behold. You guys know what behold means? Some, pay attention because somebody important is coming on the scene in our story. And what's the next word? Who is it? Boaz. Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to his reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? This is the first time Boaz sees Ruth. Do you think it's love at first sight? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It leaves silent. What we do know is Ruth probably doesn't look her best about now. Right? Where's she at? She's working in the field. She's harvesting. So she's hot. She's dirty. She's sweaty, smelly from working in the fields. She's not concerned about her looks. It's all about her character, her heart. Verse 6, so the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, it is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. So already the rumors, if you can imagine, have spread throughout Bethlehem about Ruth. Everyone knows she's the widow from Moab. Not, not what you want to be known for necessarily. Verse 7, and she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. So God, here's what's going on. God, through his gracious providence, has put Ruth in front of Boaz. Why? Because God has a plan he's going to accomplish. And what is that plan? It's the redemption of the world. He's accomplishing his greater purposes. Because we know, as we've already learned, that through the seed of Boaz and Ruth comes who? David, and through that ancestral line comes the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who dies on the cross. And so God's plan, God's purpose will not be stopped. He is orchestrating it. He's put Ruth in front of Boaz, and now they're going to have their very first conversation. Darla, do you remember our first conversation? She's like, oh, quick, do I really remember? I'm not sure. (laughs) Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, 
Will you listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Do you know what Boaz is doing here? This is so cool. Boaz is providing community and safety for Ruth. Remember, she's new to town. She doesn't know anybody. She doesn't have any friends. And he's basically saying, hey, stick close to my women here. They'll be your friends. They're your small group community now. Boaz continues in verse 9. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? Boaz establishes the first sexual harassment policy right here in the Bible. And then he tells Ruth in verse 9, And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Now, (laughs) culturally, we don't understand that phrase. But let me tell you, Boaz just turned culture upside down. Because as a Moabite woman, the custom would have been for Ruth to go to the well and draw water from the well and give the water to the men so they could drink first. But Boaz comes along and he reverses the order. And in so doing, what he has done is he is honoring Ruth. He is treating her with dignity even though she is a Moabite stranger living in their land. Now, Can you imagine the impact these words must have had on Ruth, the outsider? I mean, these are the first kind words she has heard since she left Moab. And they are coming from a man she doesn't even know. Remember, she doesn't have a clue yet who Boaz is and that he's a relative Naomi. So how would you respond if you were Ruth about now? Well, look how Ruth responds in verse 10. It says, then she fell on her face and bowed down to the ground, humility, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Boaz says in verses 11 and 12, it has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people who you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel. In other words, Boaz, here's what's going on, he recognizes, it's been told to him, and he recognizes Ruth's commitment to her mother-in-law, but more importantly, he recognizes her commitment to the God of Israel, the one true living God. He saw that Ruth was turning her back on her family and homeland and her false gods and trusting the one true and living God. So no wonder Ruth was comforted and perhaps a little overwhelmed by such grace being shown to her. And so Ruth says to Boaz in verse 13, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have what? Comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. I'm an outsider. I'm a Moabite. What's going on here is Boaz is truly a channel of God's grace. You could say that God's grace now has a human face in Boaz. 
And what's even more amazing about this grace that Boaz shows to her is he goes way beyond what was required by the law of Moses in his provision for Ruth. Way beyond the requirement of the law. The law stipulated this, leave some crumbs for the poor so that they have something to glean, something to harvest. Leave some crumbs. What does Boaz do? He doesn't just follow the the letter of the law. He goes way beyond. He supersedes the law. And in verses 14 through 16, he invites Ruth to dinner, and he tells his reapers to leave behind plenty of grain for her to glean. So the question becomes, why? Why would Boaz treat Ruth, this Moabite foreigner, with such grace that went way beyond the law's requirement? Because I don't know about you. I read God's word of how I'm supposed to treat one another, and what's my first natural tendency? If I'm supposed to love you, I'll show you. I'll show you just enough love, Bill. Just enough. Oh, I follow the law. The one another's in the New Testament. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do just enough to where I can appease my conscience that I'm satisfying God's rules. And that's how we tend to live our Christian life. And no wonder there's no joy in that. There's no satisfaction in that. Listen to me. The reason why Boaz treated Ruth with such grace, amazing grace, that goes way beyond the requirement of the law is because grace fulfills the law and then some. And then some. Because God had dealt graciously with Boaz. You know what he does now? He treats others with the same grace. You see, he is not only experience the grace of God. He not only knows the grace of God, but you do get it. He shows the grace of God. Because once you truly experience it, grace goes beyond the law and then some. That's what grace does. You can't help it. And Boaz is a man full of God's grace. So now Ruth, the outsider, has been made to feel welcome as part of God's family. It doesn't matter that she's a foreigner. It doesn't matter what her nationality is. Why? Because grace fulfills it and goes beyond. It welcomes her in. And so Ruth, man, for once in her life, she has truly found a new place to belong. She has found a new people to love and that accepts her. She has found a new God to worship. And she has found a new peace in her heart. In other words, her decision in chapter 1 to follow God is becoming, it's becoming a reality. It's worth it. Has it been hard? Yes. But God's grace is beginning to meet its, her needs in her life. Now, just pause for a moment and take this in. Just let it sink into your heart. Because I'm telling you, this is so amazing here, folks. Just think about where Ruth started in her life and where she's at, all because of the grace of God working. At the beginning of Ruth chapter 2, there was seemingly no one to provide them with food and to protect them from harm. That's where they begin in Ruth chapter 2. 
It's me and my bitter old mother-in-law and nobody else. Nobody to take care of us. Provide for us. We're hungry. But by the end of Ruth chapter 2, God has given them Boaz to protect them from harm and to provide them with food. Why? Because of the grace of God. Ruth and Naomi are truly moving from emptiness to fullness in life, from sorrow to joy, from tragedy to triumph, from bitterness to blessedness. But this brings us to an important question we've got to stop and ask ourselves. Why did Ruth find such amazing grace? Why her? Folks, here's another way to think of this question. Why have you, out of all the people in the world, why has God's grace found you? Why did Ruth find God's amazing grace? Well, here's, you know, I, the answer's already there. Let me talk about it. Because Ruth sought refuge under the wings of God. It's as plain and simple as that. Because Ruth sought refuge under the wings of God. Notice what Ruth asked Boaz again in verse 10. Here's her question in verse 10. She, she is astonished and amazed by his grace being shown to her. And so she says in verse 10, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Ruth knows that she's a Moabitess. She does not resent this, but she accepts it. As a non-Israelite, Ruth does not expect any special treatment. And yet she receives grace, abundant of grace. And her response is astonishment. And the answer Boaz gives to Ruth is crucial. Look again at what it says in verses 10 through 11. It has been reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. Now, question. Does this mean God wants us to think of Ruth's love for Naomi as a work that merits Boaz's favor and God's grace? Should we think of grace as something we earn? One definition of grace says, it is God's unmerited favor. So grace is something we can't earn. That's why it's grace. But notice now the words of Boaz in verse 12, because this is the key. It says, the Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. In other words, here's the picture. It's God as a great winged eagle and Ruth as a threatened, hopeless, helpless eaglet coming to find safety under the eagle's wings. The implication is that God will reward Ruth because she has sought refuge under his wings. Now, this is a common teaching in the Old Testament. One example is in your notes here in Proverbs 57, verse 1, where it says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. So why should God show mercy and grace to Ruth? Because she sought refuge under his wings. Ruth has counted God's protection better than anything else in the world. 
Ruth has set her heart on God for her hope and joy and satisfaction and meaning and purpose in life. And when a person does that, when a person will turn from their false gods and set their heart on God and run to his refuge under his wings, let me tell you, God will be merciful and he will act with grace on our behalf. This is the message of the gospel. Listen, God will show mercy and grace to anyone who humbles himself. God will show mercy and grace to anyone who is willing to humble themselves and run to God Almighty through Jesus Christ and take refuge under the wings of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 37, he cries out to them, the Pharisees, you know those guys, the religious pious ones. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. What a picture of so many people today. All the Pharisees had to do was take refuge under the wings of Jesus as their Savior, as their Messiah. All they had to do was stop justifying themselves, stop relying on themselves, stop glorifying themselves, but they would not. And ultimately, what did they do? They crucified him. Listen, don't be like the Pharisees. Be like Ruth. God is looking for people who will put their faith in him by taking refuge under his wings. God is looking for people who will leave family, leave homeland, or anything else that may hold us back from a life under the wings of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the lesson of hope from the fields of Boaz. If we will faithfully obey, God will graciously provide. If we will faithfully obey, God will graciously provide. What was the request at the very beginning of Ruth chapter 2? What was the request of Ruth's heart when she stepped out in faith to glean in the fields? She was hoping, she was praying in her heart that God would give her favor in somebody's eyes. And what does God do for Ruth? He graciously responds to her act of faith and she finds favor in the eyes of Boaz. With your heads bowed. And as the praise team comes to sing. Listen, I want to invite you to God's grace. That's what we've been talking about. I invite you to bow before the Lord and take refuge under the wings of God. I invite you to God's grace by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, folks, listen, you need to. He gave us salvation as a gift. And because of his death and resurrection on the cross, we can know the forgiveness of our sins and we can receive the gift of eternal life. But don't come with your hands full. Come to him with hands empty like Ruth and he will provide you with the forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life. Listen, do you know God's grace this morning? And if you do, are you showing God's grace in your relationships with others? The opportunity is here for you to do, to respond, to come where you're at to the cross and know God's grace and to begin showing it to others.